Welcome to the Missions History Podcast. On each episode of our show, David Brady and Scott Peterson explore stories from the history of missions. It's a way of looking back on the amazing things that God has done. On this episode, David and Scott are talking with Sherry Willis-Brown. Sherry is the daughter of Avery Willis Jr. and the author of the new book, I Aim to Be That Man, How God Used the Ordinary Life of Avery Willis Jr. They'll talk about his life and work on the mission field, his dedication to making disciples, not just converts, and the legacy of resources he's left behind. Here is David Brady. Hey, Sherry, as we come, let's we just talk a little bit about how did you come to write this? Um, what, what sort of prompted you and what was the process that you went through in writing uh, your father's biography? Well, originally, my mother actually asked Ron Owens, who is a biographer, he writes a number of great biographies, to write this. And he did a lot of the research of the more recent people that Dad had worked with at the at Lifeway and at the International Mission Board. But when he brought it back, um, he said, you know, I had a little trouble writing this book because I couldn't find the conflict. A good story has a something to overcome. And we realized we had done him a disservice and not provided him. I said, oh, there was a lot of conflict. Um, and at that point, it would have been too much of a revision. And he said, I don't think I can rewrite it, which left the responsibility to us. And as I prayed through it, we knew that if that one was published, it would, um, there wouldn't be another one that really told the story of the pain right. that his sacrifice and his obedience to the Lord actually caused. And I wanted it to be a story that would not just be his story, but one that any disciple could find themselves in and realize that if they could choose to obey, even through the hard times, they would see the power of God at work and the glory that it would bring to God in that it would be God's results and not theirs. Really, this book is almost an autobiography um, because you use so much of um, um, your father's journals and, and, and writings. Yes, I was privileged to have that material. When he died, Mom took me out to the garage and showed me an entire filing cabinet full of Dad's journals from the time... A few in college, but mostly from the time that they got on the ocean liner to head to Indonesia back in 1964, all the way through um, his death, that he had journaled his conversations with God, he had journaled his struggles, he had journaled what he had been able to see God do, and he also had written to his intercessors, so I had his prayer letters, I had his letters home to his parents, and so being able to take excerpts from all of those and weave them into the story. Sometimes I had to go outside and find out what was going on because I was reading it from his perspective. So sometimes I don't know the end of the story because if he went to a different position or a different situation, I followed him through his journals. But it was an exciting adventure I feel like I know my dad better now than I did when he was alive. Wow. I want to echo what David has said about the book. Um, I 
knew your dad later when I first came to the International Mission Board and he was the senior vice president here. And I saw that side of Avery Willis and, and had experiences and he had such an impact on the beginning of my career here. But as I read through uh, the letters and the the newsletters and the journal articles that uh, that you've included, I see a a side of Dr. Willis that I didn't know, and it just explains so much to me. And I I, I don't want to put it down when I'm reading a chapter. Sherry, tell us how did you come up with that title? I aim to be that man. Dad actually came up well, not obviously he didn't know it was going to be the title of the book, but it was a story that he told himself when he was struggling on whether he was going to be a true disciple of Jesus when he was in college and he was out wandering the fields around OBU. And he sensed that the Lord, that he was at a critical point in his life that he said, I would either be a true disciple and deny myself take up my cross and follow Jesus daily, or I would be a mediocre Christian for the rest of my life. And God brought to mind the story of when Henry Varley had preached and um, D.L. Moody heard him say, the world has yet to see what the world would be like with a man fully consecrated to him. And Moody walked the streets of London that night and he came back to Henry Varley and he said, I aim to be that man. Excellent. And that became dad's heart cry for the rest of his life. What could the world see if a man was fully consecrated to Christ? That's um, inspirational, inspiration and challenge to all of us. What was his growing up like? Well, he was raised by my grandparents and they were an incredible couple. Uh, My grandfather, A.T. Willis, the senior, He had a a tremendous conversion experience himself, and he was never the same after that. God struck him down in a cornfield, and he said God would not let him up until he agreed to preach the gospel. Even though he only had a sixth-grade education, he committed to the Lord that he would preach. And for the rest of his life, he was one of those old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone preachers. But he was an evangelist back in the days of tent meetings. And he gave his life to evangelism. My grandmother was a very gracious and kind, but very strong woman. And together, they raised a family who, well, they had pretty strict rules. So dad grew up in a home that, you know, even playing dice and card games wasn't allowed because anything that looked in any way like a compromise with the world they were having none of in their home. His dad took him with him when he would go preach, but his parents really discipled him. But it was in college that he actually made his own, I think, that commitment that I referred to earlier, that he committed to the Lord and that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's when I think his life turned dramatically. Now, he went to Southwestern, is that right? Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary? Yes, he started pastoring a church there while he was in Oklahoma, but then they moved to Fort Worth where he went to Southwestern Seminary and also planted a couple of churches down there. They were mission churches or brand new churches that he then became the pastor of, and they saw dramatic growth during the 
two or three years that he was at each of those churches. He pastored for 10 years in the U.S. before he went to the mission field. What is this 42 that I keep reading about? (laughs) It is a domino game. If you play spades, it's similar to spades. And I think it's also because it was dominoes instead of playing cards, and somehow it was okay. It was a legal game for a Baptist. <laughs> it was a legal game, yes. And they used to play it on the mission field a lot. And it was one of the things my mom, when she volunteered at the International Learning Center, was sure to teach all of the outgoing missionaries before they went. (laughs) Well, I kept reading this, Sherry, and I thought, man, I said her parents were really pretty relaxed compared to mine. I mean, in our family, playing Uno was a sin. So, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's because it was a card game. It was a card game. There you go. (laughs) Tell us about the experience of of how did your dad sense God calling him out of the pastorate uh, to being a missionary in Indonesia? He had wanted to be in missions actually a long time before. He felt like he needed a seminary degree and he needed some experience in the U.S. before going because he said, if I can't grow a church in the United States, in my own culture, I sure can't do it overseas. So his was a matter of timing, and when he felt like the Lord released him to go, um, and they had conversations. So they made their application the year, obviously, before they left, because that's when applications took a very long time, and they were ready, and I think they made their, they received, they left the United States a year to the day from the time they had told their church that they were going to apply to the International Mission Board. The missions was on his heart for a very long time. Yeah, One of the things that I, I found fascinating from the book is the fact that he deferred a doctoral degree because he didn't want to teach in the seminary. He wanted to be a church planter. Is that right? That's right. And he did actually get his doctorate degree on right. a furlough year. But yes, I laughed a lot when I actually went back and read his application to the then foreign mission board and the things that he said he did not want to do, which was to lead a mission or teach at the seminary or be in charge of any of those things, which he, all of which he later did. Right. (laughs) But at least he got to do his church planting for a number of years first. His whole first term was, was that in the beginning of his second term until he did feel like he was, God called him to the seminary as a result of the dramatic changes that happened when the Holy Spirit redirected them and how they were going to do missions. And, and Sherry, and we, I want to go to that, but before we do, let me just ask you this. One of the things I think is most uh, special, it's not that other missionaries don't do it, but your dad just really focused on it, and that was just the importance of prayer and of sort of gathering together an army of intercessors and keeping them informed uh, here in the United States. When he went over, he felt like the Lord told him to get 5,000 prayer partners. And he argued with the Lord about that for a while because he didn't think that was possible. But he literally went to the Southern Baptist Convention and would stop people in the hallway and say, I'm going overseas. I need someone to pray for me. Will you be one of my prayer partners? 
and they went to churches for several months before that. And he began to collect so that by the time they left for Indonesia, he had 2,000 people who agreed to receive their prayer letter. He wrote a wrote, and that was in the day when you didn't have computers or internet or email. So he had to handwrite. My mom typed. They typed, set, and printed every month a fivefold newsletter that they sent out to their prayer partners for all those years that they were in Indonesia. By the time he came back from the field, he had five thousand prayer partners. Wow! Yeah, you know, it's I. I can see his DNA all over the mission board today, and that became evident as I read that because since his time in leadership, there had been a real emphasis on our personnel as they go out getting prayer partners and finding a number of prayer partners. And I've never taken the time to explore it for sure, but I would suspect that his experience is something that was the cause of us moving in that direction. Well, and he firmly believed that prayer was the only way to revival and to a real harvest. Right. Amen. So, Sherry, you were you were a little girl when you went uh, to Indonesia, but tell us what, what was Indonesia like for the Willis family in the mid-1960s? I loved it. Um, it's tropical, so it was hot all the time. We lived in Bogor, which was one of the rain capitals of the world. You know, it would rain every day during rainy season and every other day during dry season, but only for an hour or two. And even as a kid, we got so used to the rain that we would be out playing. Here would come the clouds and the rain. We'd play right through it. The rain would stop. After an hour, we would continue playing. By the time we came in for supper, we were all dry again. It you know, all the tropical fruits and vegetables, all of those were the good things. The things that were not so great were anything mechanical. Right. People drove all over the road. You didn't know if you were going to have electricity or water or there just wasn't very much that was dependable in those days as far as mechanical things. So, so you mentioned tropical fruits. I have to ask this of, of anyone who's been in Indonesia. What's your opinion of durian? I will be honest with you, I never got even past the smell and the reputation. <laughs> I never actually tried it. Okay. My husband, who I later, who, whom I met, is a journeyman in, in Indonesia and later married. He did try it, but he didn't like it. So. <laughs> yeah, people it was either... an acquired taste for sure, and I always thought that was like people say that about beer, right? I'm like, why would I, why would I want to acquire that taste? <laughs> yeah, people, people either love it or hate it, Durian, <laughs> and I, I've stayed as far away from it as I possibly can. <laughs> so, where, David, where were you? Where were your parents? Um, they were in Guyana, South America is where I was born. And uh, so large population of people from India. In fact, that was the majority group uh, there uh, at that time. So we didn't have durian, but um, we had lots of other tropical fruits. So I, I, I'm a, a big mango fan and tamarinds and all those kind of things. So um, tell us, Sherry, you're, you're there, you're adjusting to this new culture, but but Indonesia is in the midst of political turmoil. Tell us a little bit about the attempted coup and, and just what life was like in the mid-1960s. 
Well, my parents used to laugh later. They wanted a country when they were looking at all the countries of the world that God might lead them to, and they felt led to Indonesia, who had just gained its independence from the Dutch in 1945. They said, well, good, at least they've already had their revolution. <laughs> and, then, and then the day they got there, they were greeted with the words, here's your house, and here are the escape plans. Oh, wow. At that point, President Sukarno had withdrawn Indonesia from the UN, the first country to ever do so. There was a great sense of nationalism, and being from America was not a good thing. People would ask us, where are you from? And we would just tell them we were from Jalan Hergermana, which was our physical house address, rather than say that we were from the state. Right. There, I remember laying in bed and hearing the marching out in the street. And then within a year at the time that we were there is when the communists attempted a coup, which was crushed within 24 hours. But it was the aftermath of that coup that was so impactful because the Indonesians have a very long fuse. They're a very patient and kind people. But when they snap, they really snap. And there came a time when, they, after the coup, that they wanted to be sure there were no communists left and that that would never happen again. So people just began to disappear as people took them out and slit their throats. They, the official word is like between 80 and 100,000, but there are accounts of up to half a million people who actually died in that aftermath. Mm. And the government, because communism is atheistic, passed a law saying that everyone had to have a religion because they figured if everybody, if you had a religion, you couldn't be communist. So you were allowed to choose from any of five. And so all of the religions suddenly gained some converts, but Christianity blossomed because people were looking for true answers and the churches became packed in those times. In fact, Dad wrote his doctoral dissertation on that revival. It's called Indonesian Revival, Why Two Million People Came to Christ. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's one of the things you think about this terrible season of unrest and, and death, and yet out of that, um, God uh, bring such um, a great harvest of of people coming to himself. Um, what were some of the things that your dad found were reasons that that uh, revival took place? Because people needed permanent and eternal answers. They realized how dangerous, I guess, life is. And Indonesia was 97% Muslim. And, and that's a works-based religion so that people never actually knew if they were going to have done enough good to outweigh the bad to go to heaven. So to be heard that there was true forgiveness of sin and a promise of eternal salvation was truly good news mm. for them. Amen. Amen. Well, tell us a little bit about after the church planting years, your father worked uh, in the seminary, and there was a lot of transition with that. 1971, the Indonesian mission had a their annual meeting, and at that time they had two missions professors arrive from the U.S., who 
came and interviewed a number of the pastors in the churches. They interviewed the missionaries. And what they discovered is the seminary students, excuse me, who had been brought out of the villages and brought to the seminary, then wanted to go back and pastor a building full of people with a subsidized salary. They didn't want to go back to the villages and sleep on the straw mats. They expected with a degree that then they would be provided for by the mission. And it turned out that they, the very way that the Indonesian mission was working by importing a Western-style church was backfiring on them in that it became completely non-reproducible. The Holy Spirit revealed to them that they needed drastic changes. They had a a personal revival within the mission as people began to confess sins and begin to let go of the things that they had held too tightly, which had become almost an idol in how missions was to be done. And they began to make choices then of how could they reach the masses of Indonesia. What happened that they didn't stay in Indonesia? How did God call them to a new work here in the United States? They came back in 1977, and he was dismayed at what he found in the American churches. And actually, he, he would have been happy to leave that alone and go back. But he had several people who were very critical from the Home Mission Board, the International Mission Board, and uh, the Baptist Sunday School Board at that time. And he and Roy Edgman began to talk about discipleship and what that would mean and how could we bring discipleship to the American church. And it was Roy Edgman that took him to Grady Cawthon and said, this man has a vision and the materials that we believe if we put through church training, we could revolutionize the American church. And those are the materials that he then wrote Master Life. Sherry, tell us a little bit about the impact as far as, I mean, there's so much we won't know until eternity, but what are some of the things we know about the reach uh, of Master Life? It began to reproduce rapidly in the U.S., they used it as in missions, I mean, in, I'm sorry, in prison. It eventually began to expand beyond those churches into other countries and has now been translated into over 60 languages wow. around the world. David and I were talking um, earlier about when we went through Master Life, we used this, the uh, notebook version, the older version, yes. but I know uh, later that your dad had it redone and published in separate volumes, and that's still available now, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, you can buy that through LifeWay. They found that the way that you and I did it with the 18 weeks or 36 weeks, if you did Master Life 1 and 2, right, was really formidable and difficult for people to make it all the way through. So they repackaged it into the four six-week books where people can do six weeks, take a break, come back in for the second or the third or the fourth Mm -hmm. set. 
And Sherry, um, we're going to leapfrog uh, over to uh, the 1990s when your father, Avery Willis, comes to to work with the Foreign Mission Board. And so tell us a little bit about um, some of the things that when you look back over his years at the Foreign Mission Board that were some of the most uh, significant contributions that he made. Well, and of course, it wasn't just him. It was the strategic team of Jerry and, and and Don Camerdiner who worked together as they prayed and sought the Lord. And they felt like the Lord was calling them to redesign once again how missions was happening. And instead of missions being to a country where you sent people out to the country or the continent and they did whatever they did, that they needed to start connecting with people groups. And so they basically reorganized the world, not by country, but by people groups, and put regional leaders over those areas whose main job was to do strategy. They began to let go of a lot of the physical properties, the hospitals, the TV, radio buildings, any of those kind of capital gains, and put their energy and their money into finding and reaching people who were unreached to the gospel. And then they began, again, repeating through the, to create church planting movements, reproducible churches that would reproduce more churches. Right. So, Sherry, you know, that that reorg, we, we referenced it earlier with New Directions in 1997. And, of course, that's when we became, we changed our name from Foreign Mission Board to the International Mission Board. But why don't you back up just a bit and talk about how your dad came back to the Foreign Mission Board to work alongside of, of uh, uh, Dr. Rankin and Dr. Kamadiner. And, of course, we have a, a term here that we talk about sometimes about our leadership here at the at the mission board that some of our older ones we refer to because uh, Dr. Parks and Bill O'Brien yes. and Dr. Rankin and of course Dr. Matter who's who's still with us and your dad all belong to the Indonesian mafia. Yes. <laughs> yes. I the only explanation I have for that is the power of God back in that 1970 spiritual revival in Indonesia. I believe what God worked in the hearts of those missionaries produced such spirit-led leadership and heart for the world, almost unmatched, although that revival did spread to other countries in Southeast Asia. But I believe the fruit of that was seen in the fact that for decades, the leadership of the International Mission Board was from those same Baptist missionaries who encountered God in that Tratus revival, Tratus being the place where the annual meeting was held. Well, I was just going to say, you know, when I came in here, that had yet to happen, but he he was here leading overseas operations and and working with the senior executive team. So, again, tell us a little bit about how that all came to be. Well, it was when uh, Dr. Parks was going to step down. And Dad had always wanted to return to missions, to return back to the mission field, or to help lead the mission force 
to reach the world. His heart cry and passion was that everyone in the world would have the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. <clears throat> to the point that I was leaping way forward, and then I'll come back. Before he died, they had already began to count down, and I believe there were 658 people groups, over 100,000 at that point. And even after he had leukemia, he asked the Lord to let him live until he saw each of those people groups engaged. Now, that didn't happen, but they are all engaged now, and they're down to the 50,000. And I think Rick Brecklebaum recently told me to people groups of under 25,000. But going back, that was his heart. And so when that opening came open, he applied then to be the president of the IMB. Of course, that position went to Dr. Rankin, but dad got the job that he really wanted, which was to oversee the overseas operations and not to be the U.S. leader, really, or the one that was in Richmond. He got to be out in the world, which is exactly where he wanted to be. But that 14 years, 14 months, sorry, that 14 months of seeking the Lord and standing on the Bible promises that he believed that God had given him, that he would be able to help lead, even when it didn't seem to be going that way, was a very difficult time for him and a place that I think people could relate to because he began to ask the question, if I missed God on this, what else have I missed him on? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's And a good really question. struggled with his own ability to hear God and, or that maybe he had heard incorrectly and he had put all of his chips in the bowl and then he wasn't seeing it materialize and to stand in faith on what he believed God had revealed to him was a real test of his own, another test of his own discipleship. Sherry, I know in the introduction you were, um, you were concerned, you, you asked, you were sort of asking the question out loud, uh, you know, did I share too much of the inner struggle? And I, I just want to say as a reader, as a person who's, you know, trying to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that I don't think you did. I think you hit the, just a, uh, just a great, uh, balance in that. And even the struggle, you know, there are all kinds of struggles and his sort of struggle of ambition, you know, of, I, w- I would like to be the president of the foreign mission board and, and, and how coming to the point of relinquishing that and, and realizing God had even a, a better plan for him. I, I just thank you for, for putting those interior struggles because that's what's going to help people because being a disciple is not being struggle free. Absolutely, it's actually just uh, it's going through those struggles, and I, I just am so grateful that you um, you put those in the book. And I, I think um, I know your your heavenly Father and your Father in heaven both are, <laughs> would be very happy. Oh, thank you. And and tell us a little bit about. Um, Two, two more issues that we were interested in. Tell us about something called Table 71. Oh, that's part of, that's one of my favorite parts of this whole story. Table 71 happened during uh, the World Evangelization, the Lausanne Conference of World Evangelization. Billy Graham had called together missions leaders from all of the major mission groups in the world 
to strategize, 600 of these men, to strategize how could they reach the whole world. And they were divided by tables, eight to a table. And he asked, they began to lay out the people groups that were yet unreached in the world and to ask these mission groups, these leaders, to pray over which groups they would take. And people began to come, and they would take one or two or three here, and it looked like it was moving along. There were 230 people groups of the world that hadn't been targeted, but they began to take them. And the story is when they reached 141, it just stopped. Nobody else was coming up. Nobody else was doing anything. And Bruce Wilkerson was standing at the front, and he just began to pray, Lord, I've never, anything you've started, I've never seen you do halfway. Please, Lord, complete this. And Steve Douglas, who was with Campus Crusade, and Mark Anderson of YWAM were sitting there, and they began to talk. Why don't our two organizations take the rest? And all of a sudden, Bruce saw this this conversation beginning to arise out of this one table. All the other tables were quiet and praying. And then they came up to the front and they said, table 71 takes the rest. I love it. I love it. And the, and Bruce said, there must have been shouting in heaven when, when men stepped up to the plate in such a way to see the agenda that God, that Jesus had set forth. Well, then they get back to the table, and now they've committed this, and they're like, what did we just do? <laughs> because, as Steve Douglas said, he goes, I mean, these are, oh, sorry, this was Mark Anderson, these are people, you might go in, but you might not come out. Right. And they had just chosen the final and hardest groups and all of them. So then they began to think, what would we need to do to actually reach these people? And if they, so they would, they got called dad over because he knew global strategy and church planting. They called somebody else over from Wycliffe because they knew language translation. And slowly they just began to pull in more and more people. So these people at table 71 were leaders of the largest mission groups available. And they began to strategize together. What will it take to reach the rest of the world so that someday researchers will go out and look and they will find zero unengaged, unreached people groups. Amen. That is a, that and, is a fabulous story. And you know, that, um, that Table 71 continues to exist and uh, continues yeah. to meet. And it's just, uh, it's very exciting to hear the origins of that. Yeah, I was going to say for some of our listeners that they may have heard of Amsterdam 2000. And that's where, how the meeting is commonly referred to today. And it's still, uh, we just fielded a question the other day from one of our affinity leaders who was looking at, uh, some of the information coming out of Amsterdam 2000 or that was there at Amsterdam 2000. But there was another initiative that your dad was instrumental in. And um, my friend Jim Slack, who passed away this last year, was involved in, and I think you mentioned this in the book, but uh, a new method of of discipleship and evangelism to reach those who were illiterate or were maybe not, didn't prefer to learn through uh, written material. Talk to us a little bit about that. At that very same Amsterdam 2000 conference, they were talking about how 70% of the world are oral 
learners. They do not know how to read and write. They are not literate learners. And Marcus Vey of Progressive Vision turned to Dad and he said, Avery, how do you make disciples of oral learners? And Dad said, I don't know. I, I teach literates. And Marcus said, you know discipleship, Avery. It's your job. <laughs> and Dad went home from that just struck. The Lord would not let him alone with that. And so he decided 70% of the world needed discipleship through oral means, then he would do what he needed to do to pull that together. So he pulled J.O. Terry and Jim Slack and other people who had begun chronological Bible storying, which is the process of telling the stories of Scripture through oral means of a culture, which it might not just be, I'm going to tell you a story. It might be using dramatization or dance or song or whatever means the oral learners of the world already were engaged in in how they passed their culture and their stories on and to use that very same means so that they were reaching the heart language of the people. So they put together about 400 stories of the Bible together, put it on tape and began to train the missionaries or people who were going out to these groups in how do you tell the stories of Scripture, true, it doesn't have to be memorized, but true to the Gospel, true to the story that was in the Bible, and let the Holy Spirit take that and then speak to the hearts of the people in their own language. Many, I mean, that's how Jesus taught most of his the crowd, the people that followed him. He told them through parables. He told them stories. He did also teach them, and so that became a new way to teach through many of the countries of the world. Yeah, and, you, you and after that. Dad retired, he he began he began hearing more and more of those stories. But it also began to dawn on him that most of this generation in the United States are also primarily oral preference learners. It's not that they can't read and write but that they choose not to right. and that they get most of their own information through YouTube and movies and podcasts. And then he began to realize that maybe that very same method needed to be brought back into the American church to reach this generation. And you tell the story in your book of, uh, of Etau and the story in Papua yes. New Guinea, which was, is right around the corner from Indonesia where you, your, your parents served and you grew up and, um, that story had such an impact on my own uh, life and career, and it's a, it's an amazing story if you watch the video of that entire village just responding and receiving the gospel message. But that in and of itself and the partnership that developed between uh, New Tribes and uh, uh, um, Wycliffe and others to, and it continues to continue to refine uh, and to teach this methodology and refine those stories. And I think, um, didn't a product come out of those efforts, an audio product called Following Jesus? Yes. That is the, well, a book also called Making Disciples of Oral Learners. Right. But yes, they did the Following Jesus, which is a series of DVDs that has those stories on them so that people can learn them and use them. It also has the questions because the key to the Storing is then to ask questions so that it becomes a discovery kind of learning for those who are listening. 
Sherry, I can't tell you how excited I have been to have this opportunity to talk with you about uh, your book, about your your um, father's life and his ministry. Um, I know you've referred to the book as um, primarily his um, autobiography because you have so many direct quotes from him, but I think you do a really good job sort of um, explaining and connecting those. And so we encourage our readers to, um, to go out and get a copy. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. Sherry, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to share with us about your dad or your mom? You know that my mother passed away very recently, just this past December. And so we are, as a family, are just so aware of the heritage that we have by what our parents seeded in our own hearts. Yes. Um, And the heart cry that they have for the world, of course, I have nephews and brothers and brothers-in-law and who are missionaries and missions pastors, and that, we pray, will continue through the generations of the Willis offspring. Yes, yes. <laughs> because I truly believe that my parents set that in our hearts. They took their grandchildren on mission trips so that they could see the rest of the world and get a vision for what God called them to do. I am just grateful for what they have implanted in my life and the legacy of discipleship. You know, I took that master life with dad when it was on the proof sheet as he was writing it. And we spent two hours every Sunday afternoon when I was in college. That's amazing. That was foundational to the rest of my life. Amen. Amen. I, I absolutely, absolutely. I, what an incredible experience. And I shared with you that when I was 14, um, my dad and I did it together and I treasure that time that we had. So I, I know your parents and their ministry will go on to bless many. Uh, he will be that seed that fell into the ground, continuing bearing uh, fruit by God's by God's grace. Sherry, we're so grateful that you've been with us. We'd love for you to say a prayer. Um, just we'll all be amening with you, thanking God for the life of your mom and dad, but particularly um, asking that the Lord would help us as Southern Baptists to continue to reach the unreached and to make disciples of all peoples. Okay. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the work that you did in my parents' life and the work that you did through them. Father, I know that they would want all glory to go to you because you are the one who did the work. You are the great and gracious God. Yes, Lord. And it is your heart cry, God, that all of your children that are being called to you would know and follow and be your disciples. And so, Father, we ask, you ask us to pray for laborers to go into the fields that are white for harvest. And so I do ask, Lord God, that you would arise within hearts to feel your passion for your people, to see a vision of of the many tribes and tongues and nations gathered before the throne and who would seek to be a part of that, of that harvest, God, of bringing your gospel to the very ends of the earth. We ask for your Holy Spirit to fall and do a work of revival in the American church and throughout the world, Lord God, so that people will make disciples, not just converts, but they will make disciples who will make disciples, that we will see the multiplication process that you began when you sent Jesus and he chose the 12 to see them reproduce 
everything that you did, Jesus. Awaken us, O God, as a people, as a body of Christ, united together across nations, across mission groups. Make us one united body, as Jesus prayed, that the world would know that we are his disciples by our love, and that we would press forward to reaching every person that you have called unto yourself, God, with the truth and the power of the gospel. Come, Holy Spirit, and we will give all of the glory and praise to you, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe today and leave us a rating and review in iTunes. This episode was edited and mixed by Narrativo. You can find many more resources about global missions at imb.org. Thanks for listening. 